It's really important to find content that you like. It's even more important than finding content that's comprehensible to you. My method that I use, it's not actually a method of pure input. There's, I guess, three main factors you want to take into account when you're trying to look for good immersion content. It is the only way to actually get good. Some people just don't realize that. Hello, hello, language lovers. Welcome back to LingoCast, the podcast of your language journey. And now we're starting our episode number 61 with a very interesting topic and a very special guest that I have been willing to talk for a long time. And today's topic is learning a language and getting fluent through complete immersion. How much immersion have you had in your language journey? How much do you think it's effective? Do you think that adults learn languages just like kids? These and many other topics will be discussed today with Matt from Matt vs Japan. But before we start this interview, don't forget to follow us on social media and your favorite podcast platform. And if you like our project and would like to support us, you can be part of our patron program, choosing the most suitable option for you. That can give you the possibility to send questions to our guests, be part of our WhatsApp group, and be aware about the, the content that haven't been posted yet and the ones that we are planning to produce. Once done with all of that, we can start today's episode. Matt versus Japan. How are you doing, Matt? Great. Thank you. Nice to, nice to uh, be on your podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, nice to have you here. I'm really excited for this episode. Following our work, we can see that you don't only speak Japanese. That's the main thing that you have been uh, mentioning. Can you tell mm -hmm. a, a little bit about uh, yourself and your language journey with Japanese? Yeah, yeah. So I guess at this point, if you want to count everything, my journey with Japanese is coming up on about 12 years now. So when I was in high school, I just kind of happened to get into Japanese by stumbling across anime. Uh, it's not really a very unique story. Probably most of the people who are really into Japanese got into it through anime. So, you know, nothing really, were, you know, notable there too much. But yeah, I watched anime. For whatever reason, the language just really fascinated me, really pulled me in. And I immediately decided that I wanted to get really good at Japanese and go and live in Japan. And so, yeah, that's kind of how it started. And I've kind of been doing nothing but Japanese ever since. Uh, of course, there's a lot more details there. But uh, yeah, any, any aspects in particular that you kind of uh, want to go into? We'll go through during the interview. And it's really interesting because at the end of the episodes, I usually ask people to give me a name and a topic that they would like to see in the following episodes. And two people mentioned you. Oh, really? And yeah, and I was really curious to to have you here. And so Lucas Bigetti from the from Language Boost and Dragos Luca mentioned you. Another friend of us, uh, which is Stefano Suigo, sent you a question. Mm -hmm. And he wants to know what uh, manga or uh, anime has been the most challenging to understand due to the way characters talk and why. Yeah, I mean, the the first ones that come to mind are probably either uh, Yojo Hanshin wa Taike, also known as the Tatami Galaxy, or Fate Zero. And yeah, those, I mean, there might be other ones that aren't coming to mind now, but those are the ones that come to mind when I think of like the most challenging anime from a, you know, linguistic perspective. Mm -hmm. And mostly just because the characters use tons of super uh, vague, or not vague, but just super rare words and expressions. That almost never come up in in real life, uh, and also in the case of Yojo Hanshin Wataike, also the character, the main character who like narrates the whole show, just talks like super fast. So it's like this like super fast, uh, you know, bullet speed 
talking in combination with all these really rare expressions that you almost never hear. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it, and when it comes to anime, the difficulty generally comes from the vocabulary being really hard. And, you know, because anime is narrated by voice actors. Voice actors are trained to enunciate things almost hyper clearly. And so the difficulty never really comes from people mumbling or things being too fast. Generally, the difficulty just comes from if they're using tons of rare words and expressions that you almost never hear anywhere else, then that's generally where the difficulty comes from with anime in particular. And those two shows definitely would fall into mm -hmm. that category, I'd say. Yeah, interesting. And you mentioned anime and you've learned a lot of Japanese through immersion. That's actually the topic that Lucas chose for this episode, uh, complete immersion. And mm -hmm. yeah, can, can you tell a little bit about how do you, did you notice that you were actually learning a lot by immersion? and that it was actually effective because i think that's not a, the traditional way we hear like at school about language learning and how we should do like we approach a lot of grammar and these things uh, how can you yeah yeah that? can you tell us how you find it out well so for me for the first two years of my japanese study after i got interested in it i was doing very very normal standard things so like i took japanese classes at my high school I also took Japanese classes at my local college, even though I was still a high school student, just because I was so motivated. And I also downloaded a bunch of random apps to like learn Japanese and, and learn random grammar here or there. And I was also watching anime with English subtitles kind of on the side. But I didn't really think of that as part of the learning process in the beginning. Mm -hmm. That was just something I did for fun. And the like, quote unquote, learning was, you know, doing these apps and going to these classes and reading these textbooks and stuff. And I did that for about two years. And although I was better than the other people around me studying Japanese, just because I was more motivated, I took it more seriously, I was nowhere close to being fluent. Like, it was kind of like, if I thought about, okay, I want to be like a, a near native level of Japanese ability, where I was after two years, I was maybe like 1% of the way there. So it kind of felt like, okay, at, the, at this rate, it'll take me the rest of my life to actually get good at Japanese. And so it was around then that I started looking for more effective ways to learn Japanese. And I came across a website, alljapaneseallthetime.com, that talked about immersion, basically, or, or getting mass input. Really, how input in the language is getting input is the most important factor to getting good at a language. And you, it really takes massive amounts of it to really get to the point where you can function at, a, at an adult-like level in the language, especially in a language like Japanese that's so different from uh, you know, Western languages. Mm -hmm. And so I really liked the website. It made a lot of sense to me. I really trusted what the guy was saying. And so I decided, okay, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to dive in wholesale 100%. And so for me, I, I kind of had this really strong faith. For whatever reason, I found the website very convincing. And so I had this faith of like, okay, if it worked for this guy who made the website, then I'm sure it'll work for me. And so I started doing it. And at in the beginning, you don't notice the results that immediately in terms of your speaking ability but you can notice it pretty quickly in terms of your comprehension so i as soon as i decided to start doing this mass input where i i would try to listen and read to japanese as much as i possibly could every day probably you know aiming for like eight hours if i could eight to ten hours if i could of just exposing myself to the language as much as i possibly could sometimes in active forms like sitting down and like really trying to work my way through a show and lots of times probably even more than half the time in a more passive form where I'd keep it keep on Japanese audio in the background while I did other things and so 
once I started doing this massive Japanese input, I, I when I started this, I also took off all English subtitles. So up until that point, I'd watch anime with English subtitles. After this point, I'd watch anime with either Japanese subtitles or no subtitles, mostly no subtitles. And what I found was, well, at the beginning, I understood very, very little, but I could very tangibly feel myself understanding more and more on a, on a weekly or even daily basis. Like every single day, I would understand new words that I'd for the first time and I'd have this recognition of like oh I just understood that word and I've never understood that word before and so I had these experiences that were very tangibly letting me know that I was growing at least in some way and so that was what made me able to maintain that faith and keep on going with it for the long term until I finally got the speaking results as well which came you know much further down the line. And uh, in your opinion, what are common mistakes that people make while trying to get immersed in a foreign language? Um, well, probably the biggest one is only doing passive immersion, like only putting the language on in the background and not having time where they're actively engaged with the language. You know, they, they think it's kind of like, okay, I'll just like put it on in the background and then I'll just basically change nothing else about my life and then somehow I'll just magically get better. And generally that doesn't, doesn't really create much results. It's not very effective. So in my experience, if you actively engage with the language, like you have time every day where you're like just sitting down, putting all of your attention towards trying to work your way through either a text or a show or something in the language, and then you combine that with also listening to the language in the background, then that back background listening does help you improve more quickly than you would otherwise. But if you only do the background passive listening, then that alone Generally, your brain just starts to kind of phase it out and treat it like white noise, and then you don't really get any gains. So that's probably the biggest thing. Uh, the other probably probably second biggest mistake is not taking uh, the act of finding content that's interesting to you seriously enough. So a lot of people will just like go and they'll try to watch the first show they find on Netflix in their target language, even if that show might suck or not be interesting to them. Um, or they try to force themselves to watch uh, children's shows, even though they find that excruciatingly boring. And they'll kind of, yeah, they'll just, they won't seriously try to find engaging content. So I think in this approach of, you know, immersing yourself through content, it's really important to find content that you like. It's even more important than finding content that's comprehensible to you or on your level. And so I think you have to really take that act of constantly finding new content you're interested in very seriously. And and how do you uh, do you filter and you select the content that you will choose like for you like something that is interesting for you but you do you actually check the the level? I or... mean, so what I did when I was watching Japanese is I just naturally had lots of things that I wanted to watch like because I was an anime fan. Mm -hmm. There was right off the bat, you know, t tens of shows that I wanted to watch, tens of ma manga, light novels, and so I kind of just went through all the stuff that I already wanted to watch and tried to find something that didn't feel like too hard, you mm -hmm. know? And nothing was truly on my level at the beginning, but there was still like a gradient. Like at the beginning, novels were just too hard because there's nothing but text and they tend to use like very difficult language. So it was really just like way too much of an uphill battle. Whereas for watching anime, even if you don't understand that much, you can still enjoy it because there's visuals There's this music, you know, you can watch the characters. And so, you know, I mean, you can understand a lot of what happens in a, in a movie or an anime, even with the sound off. So, you know, if you've ever had that experience of you're on an airplane, you're looking over what the, the person on the other side of the airplane is watching on their screen, you get more interested in it than like what you're doing. 
you know, you can get a lot just from the visuals. So at first I kind of mainly watched things because that was still enjoyable, even though I didn't have uh, that high comprehension. And then I kind of just worked my way up from there. Uh, but what I tell people now generally is there's kind of, there's, I guess, three main factors you want to take into account when you're trying to look for a good immersion content. One and the most important one is how interesting it is to you. Like how compelling is it? That's always the thing you have to prioritize the most because if it's too boring, you're not going to do it and you're going to check out. Mm -hmm. Second one is comprehensibility. So in general, the more comprehensible it is, then the easier it's going to be to learn from it uh, up until a certain point. Of course, if you understand 100% of it, then there's not going to be very much new to learn. So, you know, there's kind of a sweet spot there with comprehensibility, but I think you kind of figured that out naturally over time. And then the last component is how dense the content might be from a linguistic perspective. So, for example, if you're watching a, uh, a movie or, or watching a TV show, then there's going to be relatively few moments where you're not getting exposed to the language, right? Like in a movie, there might be an action scene where people are just beating each other up and they're not saying anything. So in that scene, for, the, for those seconds, about 30 seconds or a few minutes, you're not actually getting any input, any language input, even though you're technically watching a movie. But in general, movies and especially TV shows, there's not that many moments of silence or moments of, of no dialogue, right? There's pretty conti relatively continuous dialogue, so that's good. But on the other hand, something like a video game, depending on what type of video game it is, there can be you know many, many minutes uh, where you're just fighting a battle or you know jumping around. Uh, like the other day, I was I just for fun here in Japan, I bought a Super Nintendo, uh, just because they're super cheap here. Retro gaming is really cheap in Japan. That's one of the, one, one thing really cool about living here. So I went and I just bought a Super Nintendo and I bought I bought like Super Mario Worlds, uh, the one I used to play at my grandpa's house when I was a kid. <laughs> and there's some language input like at the very very beginning of the game. There's like there's like three sentences of text of context of like okay Mario has come to this world and he needs to rescue somebody, but like after that there's just no Japanese. Like I might as well be playing the English cartridge. And so in that case, you know, hey, I'm technically playing a Japanese game, but I'm not really getting exposure to the language. So you would say I would say it's very. Uh, low density in terms of linguistic input. So in general, the the more linguistically dense the content is, then the more you're getting exposed to the language, and the more efficiently you're gonna learn. So those are the three factors: the, the how compelling it is, how comprehensible it is, and how dense it is. Some languages like English are more international, let's say, or and we can actually learn it without creating like a solid connection with the culture of um, a country in which the this language is spoken. And do you think it applies to Japanese as well in the sense that we don't actually need to create a, a connection with the culture? Or it's really difficult to learn uh, the language if we'll, you don't get connected? Uh, you don't get into the culture? Well, it depends on what you mean by, like, learn the language. Like, mm -hmm. I think, like, hypothetically, right? Mm -hmm. Someone could watch nothing but, like, Japanese dubs of American movies and American TV shows and learn the language entirely from those. And they could get pretty far in learning Japanese, right? Like they could get to the point where they understand most of Japanese and they could speak, they could learn to speak Japanese that way, although they would sound like a dubbed American, like an American character dubbed into Japanese, which is a little bit different than how people speak in real life. But hypothetically, I mean, I think it could be done, right? Like that you could still get to the point where you could, you could proudly call yourself fluent in Japanese, even though you may, you might know close to nothing about Japanese culture. But um, that'd be kind of a weird goal to have. Like, what would what would be the value of that? Like, you couldn't... 
I mean, maybe you just love how Japanese sounds, and so you you just really want to watch American movies dubbed into Japanese. In that case, you would meet your goal. But if you actually went to Japan, then you're not going to be very successful interacting with Japanese people without understanding Japanese culture. So, for the most part, if you, I mean, there there are certain people who just really love anime, and the, they're on a pursuit to understand anime without subtitles, and that's the extent to their motivation to learn Japanese. They don't care about going to Japan. They don't care about interacting with people in real life. And so for them, then maybe, yeah, they just learn, they just watch a lot of anime and they can learn their, they can accomplish their goal that way of getting really good at understanding Japanese. Although I think just by watching anime, you inevitably learn a lot about Japanese culture, uh, right? Just because it shows up in the anime all the time. Although you're getting a kind of very skewed view of Japanese culture. So there's certain things of Japanese culture you'll learn through anime other things you'll completely miss out on but still i mean any any even someone who doesn't know japanese but has watched a lot of anime knows quite a bit about japanese culture at least on a superficial level right like they know there's this they have culture festivals and they wear uniforms when they go to high school and you know they drive on the left side of the road like all these things and so there's still that aspect of like uh you'll end up learning something about the culture um but yeah, so I think, yeah, technically it's possible, and some people actually do that in the case of anime, but um, yeah, I, I, I think in a, in a way it's not so different from English, it's just that in reality, like, most people want to learn Japanese because they want to have something to do with Japanese content or Japanese culture, which inevitably, you know, involves learning the culture, so... Mm-hmm. And like you said, everything everything depends on your goal with the language, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. No. So I mean, yeah, I think it's hypothetically possible. I just think it's not really practical. I think for uh, for most people, learning the culture is just uh, like the, most people don't have a motivation to learn Japanese and not learn the culture. I think most people, they, their goal, it kind of comes as a whole package, right? Like they're interested mm-hmm. in Japan, in Japanese, and in Japanese people as, as kind of like a package. So it's just kind of natural to learn about the culture along with the language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think with the Japanese that that's actually the case. And do you think that um, the complete immersion itself is enough to learn the language and reach a, like such a high level like you did? Or, or how would you compl- uh, complement this approach? If it's not enough. So by emerging, you mean like just getting input, like just watching TV shows or? Yeah, any kind of like you were saying more passive and active immersion and input like you, you had mentioned. Do you think that it's enough to, to reach a high level only with this kind of learning? Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's how we all learned our native language, right? Mm-hmm. Like we all learned, got to native level in our native language entirely through input without studying grammar or studying vocabulary explicitly. Right. So obviously we all experience that at least one time. Uh, of course, the question is, well, can you still that do that again as an adult or do you lose the ability to do that? But I'm inclined to think we don't really lose very much uh, of that ability, even as an adult. Um, the problem is that we don't actually take the same approach mm-hmm. as infants do. Right. Most of the time when we study a language as an adult, we do something completely different than what we did as an infant. And then we get different results. And then people tend to use that as a way to conclude, oh, so I guess we're not as good at learning language as infants are, right? But if you look into the work of J. Marvin Brown, which is somebody who has had a big influence on my thinking in the last year or so, he was a linguist who ran a a language school in Thailand. 
And at this language school, they helped Thai people learn English, and they also helped foreigners, uh, like foreigners from outside of the of Thai who are visiting Thailand, to learn the Thai language. And the approach that he eventually settled on after a lot of trial and error was one of of just pure input. So basically, he would have two native uh, Thai speakers stand. Well, so if we were going to use the example of a foreigner who wanted to learn the Thai language, he would have these foreigners sit in the classroom. And at the front of the classroom, he would have two native Thai speakers interact with one another in a completely comprehensible way. So that even if you didn't know a single word of Thai, you could still understand what was going on and roughly what they were saying, at least in a very broad sense. And he would also work really, really hard to make the input or, uh, compelling. So it was actually interesting, right? His goal was to make the interactions between the Thai people so engaging that you would for, you would forget that it was supposedly a language learning experience, right? It would it would feel like it was just an experience in and of itself, and he had to do a lot of innovating to actually come up with these comprehensible, compelling experiences. But after many years of trial and error, he he was able to do this very successfully. And what he found is that the students who really stuck to the approach and they didn't do any studying outside of class, they didn't look words up in the dictionary, they didn't try to analyze the language, they really just acted like children, allowed their brain to figure out the language naturally, went to improve really, really quickly and get really, really good. And within a couple of years, like after going to the school for a year or two, and then just living in Thailand for an additional three or four years, they would almost sound like a native speaker of the Thai language. Mm -hmm. And so reading about this uh, was really eye-opening for me uh, because it made me realize, well, yeah, maybe as an adult, if you really do exactly what an infant does, you can get close to the same results as an infant, maybe even better results as than, uh, than infants do because adults are a lot smarter than infants are, right? We already understand concepts and things like that. But uh, the problem is this school doesn't exist for most languages. Like, for example, if you wanted to have, do replicate this style of learning with Japanese, it's just kind of impossible because there's nowhere you can go to have this experience, right, of basically having real-life interactions with native Japanese speakers who are doing things that are not only comprehensible but also compelling, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it just doesn't exist anywhere, right? Hopefully it does one, it will one day, but right now it doesn't. And so when what, what we're doing when we're sitting home and watching anime alone on our room on a laptop or something is we're basically compromising, right? The ideal experience would be we'd, have, we'd be having a real interaction with a, a live human and that human would be making things comprehensible for us, would be making it engaging. And so if we, we don't have that, so we just watch anime that's meant for adults generally. Or sometimes we watch TV shows meant for children, but they're generally not as, they're not as comprehensible and they're not as compelling. And so I think probably whoever asked this question, what they probably meant was, can you just sit and do nothing but watch anime and learn the language that way? So that's like a slightly different question, right? I think with ideal input, it's definitely possible is it possible just with anime? Mm, probably, I think so, but it would be a lot slower than in the in the case of the ideal input, uh, right? And and so my method that I use, it's not actually a method of pure input because mm -hmm. oh, it, although that was the main ingredient, it wasn't the only ingredient, right? I also was looking up a lot of words uh, in the dictionary. I was making flashcards in Anki to memorize lots of vocabulary. I had a foundation in, in studying the grammar of the language. And so doing all these other more study things helped make the input a lot more comprehensible to me. And that allowed me to improve a lot faster than I would otherwise. Mm 
-hmm. So I don't actually recommend people to just sit and watch anime and do nothing else. Mm -hmm. I think that that would be too slow and excruciating for most people to do. And so instead you supplement that with looking things up and memorizing things with Anki. And then that uh, it, it allows us to kind of compensate for the fact that we don't have this truly ideal input from native speakers who have been trained to be both comprehensible and compelling at the same time. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I wanted to ask you is because I've heard many times that the process of language acquisition and learning from mass immersion is actually slower, but it's the most effective one if we want to sound like a native speaker like you or sound native-like, let's say, like you had mentioned. Um, and it, so you, you, agree, you do you also think it's slower than uh, other methods? It's more so effective, but it, slower? It, it depends on, on how you're measuring and especially what timeline you're measuring things on. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if, you're, if you were only measuring on a three-month timeline, right, and you had one guy who was taking an immersion-based approach and another guy who was taking a more traditional, just like practice speaking from day one, where they're, they're very actively kind of like thinking in their native language and then translating into the target language using grammar that they memorized, like that more kind of traditional skill building approach. Mm -hmm. On a three-month time scale, the tr more traditional skill building approach would probably lead to somebody being able to speak the language better mm -hmm. um, because that's what they're speaking. But, and so, but the problem with that more traditional skill building approach is that you very quickly reach a ceiling where it's really hard to, to make further progress, right? You, once you kind of maybe reach a B1 or B2 level, it's like almost impossible to make it past that. And so, and, and, and then you have to kind of completely switch your approach and do something completely differently. So if you're mm -hmm. measuring on more like a, a two-year timeline, I mean, it depends a lot on the language because of course, more difficult languages or more languages that are more different from your native language take a lot longer to learn. Mm -hmm. But let's say on like, in the case of Japanese, on a, if you looked at like a two-year or three-year timeline, and the person who takes an immersion approach is going to be way better than the person who takes the traditional approach. So in that sense, it's actually way faster, mm -hmm. uh, right? Because like right now I'm in Japan on a student visa. And so I'm forced to take Japanese classes here, even though they're way too easy for me. And so I see people um, who have been learning Japanese for like, literally there's one guy in my class who's been learning Japanese as long as me. He's literally been learning Japanese for 12 years, but he's never done immersion. He's just done the basic way. And his Japanese is, is awful. I mean, no offense to him. He's a cool guy. But uh, his Japanese is, is, is surprisingly bad considering how long he's been studying the language. And so if, you, if you're looking at, at like a, a longer time scale, then not only is it faster, but it's, it's kind of like the only way to actually get really mm -hmm. good. And I think there's lots of people who have basically done the traditional approach for a while and then maybe moved to the country and then lived in the country and immersed themselves that way. And then they kind of, and then they, they do eventually get fluent in the language, but they don't realize how little the study contributed to their final achievement and how much the immersion contributed to the final achievement. So in their head, they're like, oh yeah, how did I learn Japanese? Oh, I learned it with textbooks and classroom study. When in reality, they mostly learned it through immersion and, and natural input they got in the, in real, from real life, you know? So I think um, basically immersion, I think immersion or input is the only way to actually get good. Some people just don't realize that um, when they reflect on their own experience, because it doesn't, it, it's like we, we tend to over to, to really remember the stuff that was painful and boring, right? Like when we put in all this work grinding through textbooks or whatever, um, that, that leaves a really big impression on us. So I think we have this 
bias that if it was painful, then it surely was very effective, right? Whereas that's not always the case. Like if we, if you think about it in the case of working out, you know, some like of course, there, even if you're doing um, exercises with proper form that are that are proper that are effective exercises, you're going to feel some pain. Um, but sometimes you feel pain just because you're you're fucking up your joints and mm-hmm. it's not doing you any good, right? So there's good pain and there's bad pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think people we have a bias to contribute all pain to good pain. Be like, oh, that hurt me, so clearly that, that must be have led to me getting stronger. Uh, and then when it, when you are just having fun, you know, drinking with your friends with your Japanese friends at a bar, you don't think of that as learning. So you kind of don't realize that maybe that was doing more for you than all your hard JLPT study was. Mm-hmm. More implicit learning, yeah. That's that's actually uh, true. And uh, another thing that you have mentioned that's really interesting that everything depends on the language and how distance uh, distant to this language is from the language you already know, mm-hmm. right? And but in case of a Japanese, it takes much longer to start understanding the language. And how to how do you deal with this? How do you keep uh, how do you stay motivated to learn, knowing that it's going to take longer to to start understand the then in comparison with other languages which are closer. Well, for me, I mean, I wasn't really thinking it in terms of like, oh man, I'm learning Japanese, so it's going to take me three times longer than Spanish or something. For me, Japanese was the language I wanted to learn. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I didn't care about any other language. So for me, it wasn't, it was just like, I want to learn Japanese. That's the end of the story. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Uh, of course, I want to do it as fast as possible. But if it takes three years, it takes three years. If it takes five years, it takes five years. I just wanted to learn Japanese. So that was kind of the first thing was that I just, I wanted to know Japanese. So I was going to do whatever it took. Mm-hmm. But the other thing was, like I said, um, although it takes a long time to get to the point where you understand everything, or at least understand most things, you're constantly improving. It's not like you just understand zero for three years and then suddenly you understand 99%. It's like you go from 1% to 2% for 3%. Mm-hmm. And I could feel that progress happening on a, on a really day-to-day basis. In fact, improvement is not linear. It's actually exponential. So, you know, it takes you maybe in the first year you go from zero to 90. In the second year, you go from like 90 to 98. And then in the third year, you go from 90 to 99. And then you start, and then you spend the next like, rest of your life going from 99 to 99.9 to 99.999 like and you never get to 100 basically right Mm -hmm. um and so in that first year you go from zero to 90 and so that's a huge shift right and so you're you're feeling this really rapid progress all the time you constantly are understanding new words like almost every week i would go back and watch some of my old favorite shows and notice that i could understand more of them like oh i finally understand that that line i missed that i never understood previously and so even though maybe you're, you're at the end of the day, you only understand 40%, 50% at a certain given point, it's the constant growth that keeps you motivated, right? It's that feeling of like, oh, I'm growing so rapidly right now. Like if I just keep doing this, I'm, gonna, I'm eventually going to be crazy good. It's almost like you get high off of the constant improvement. And, one, and then eventually, of course, when you're like two or three years in, your progress rapidly slows down. But at the same time, by that point, you already understand over 90%. So you, the the act of consuming the content itself is a lot more enjoyable, right? It, it actually feels like you're enjoying TV shows. You're not just, you know, doing a language learning activity. And so it kind of shifts from like the, the enjoyment of just pure progress and it almost feeling like you're getting better at a video game to it being more chillaxed progress, but you're actually enjoying the content now. And it, it kind of has that transition. And so that that's kind of why for me, it was never that painful. It was always pretty enjoyable. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, perfect. And when when, we, when it comes to Japanese, there is something that everyone usually mentions, which is the the pitch accent. Can can mm -hmm. you try to explain in, uh, for people who do not know what pitch accent is? Because I think you, once you mentioned that Japanese people were actually saying intonation to you, right? And yeah, yeah. So basically, so pitch accent to probably the most simple way to put it is that every word in Japanese uh, has a certain melody that it should be pronounced with. And if you don't pronounce it with that melody, then it sounds weird and kind of wrong to Japanese people. Mm -hmm. uh, now, they'll still understand you if you speak with the wrong pitch accent, but you just will have a, a very particular foreign-sounding accent. And, and for whatever reason, almost no Japanese learning resources uh, really talk about pitch accent in depth. They'll either not mention it at all, or maybe they'll have like one page or like one paragraph where they briefly tell you, by the way, there's this thing called pitch accent, and then they never mention it again. And so most people just go about learning Japanese completely oblivious to pitch accent. Mm -hmm. And I was no exception to this. This is what happened to me as well. And so, yeah, for me, I, after like doing intensive immersion for about four or five years, I only really kind of awoke to pitch accent when I asked my Japanese friend, like, hey, if you talk, if you talk to me on the phone, could you tell that I'm not Japanese? He's like, yeah, I could tell. And I was like, why? What, what, what would give it away? What am I, what, what's wrong with my Japanese? And he said, oh, your intonation is off. And so, yeah, it took me a little while to figure out what he meant, but it just turns out that um, for whatever reason, the word, like the, the way that Japanese people colloquially talk about uh, pitch accent and versus intonation is like almost the exact opposite of how linguists talk about it. So the, the terms in linguistics are consistent across Japanese and English. Um, like in English, it's called pitch accent. Japanese it's called accento so it's it's in Japanese linguistics and then mm -hmm. separate from pitch accent there's a concept called intonation which is kind of like just the general rises and falls of the whole sentence as a whole it's not really specific to individual words it's kind of just like the overall flow of your speech which is exists in every language uh, like when you ask a question you raise the the pitch at the end of the sent of the, the sentence right um, that's like intonation. So of course, in, in Japanese, in Japanese linguistics, intonation is called intonation. Um, but for whatever reason, in the way that normal everyday Japanese people who've never studied linguistics talk about it is they just refer to both as intonation. Mm -hmm. But chances are, when Japanese person says intonation, they're referring to pitch accent, like 90% of the time. And so, uh, yeah, basically... If you want to sound like a native speaker, or, you're, or you're maybe not necessarily a native speaker, but you just want to have like a good Japanese accent, then yeah, studying pitch accent is completely crucial. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not the type of thing that you can pick up naturally. And this is just something that people just really don't want to admit, right? People just really, especially believers in immersion, people who really believe in this uh, technique, they're, they really want to believe they can just pick it up naturally by listening to lots of Japanese. And I wanted to believe that for a long time too, but the evidence just isn't there. Like 99% of people who, who try to learn, who try to just pick up Japanese or who try to pick up pitch accent naturally through just listening to Japanese, don't pick it up. And then they speak with uh, wrong pitch accent. So it kind of seems like um, at least taking this type of approach. I mean, I think that hypothetically, if you took a purely natural approach where you're, you're, you were doing basically what I talked about with J. Marvin Brown's school, where you're learning entirely through input and just through listening alone, you're not learning how to read until you're already fluent in the spoken language. 
and you're not studying consciously, you're really just allowing your subconscious mind to work its own magic, then I think it, it would be possible to pick up Japanese uh, pitch accent naturally, probably. But for whatever reason, uh, some combination of the way that modern people tend to learn Japanese, even with an immersion approach, um, leads to people not picking up pitch accent. Uh, and I have a lot of theories about why exactly that is, but that's just the empirical result that we can very easily observe by looking at almost any speaker of Japanese, uh, any, any foreign speaker of Japanese. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, if you want to sound good in Japanese and have like a good accent, then you need to study pitch accent. And if you're going to study it, the best time to study it is from the beginning so that um, you can just learn it alongside everything else and build good habits from the beginning. Because once you build bad habits of speaking Japanese with the wrong pitch, going back and Fixing those habits is a lot harder than just learning it correctly mm -hmm. the first time. That's actually what you had to do, right? Yes, and it was. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. It's possible. <laughs> I did it. I worked very, very hard to go back and fix my pitch. Um, and, but that it, it was a multi-year-long process that was very um, took, took a lot of time and a lot of hard work. And I'm in a way, I'm glad I did it because I, I have a different perspective than somebody who just learned it right, learned pitch correctly the first time. And so as someone who is kind of a teacher of Japanese, it was a very valuable experience, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't, I wouldn't not recommend it. I would recommend just do it right the right way the first time. It's going to save you a lot of uh, time and effort. Yeah, totally. And uh, you also say that uh, you, you advise waiting until we have a higher level of comprehension before starting to speak in a language. Do you think it mm -hmm. applies to other languages that, are, that aren't as distant uh, as Japanese from our mother tongues, like from English, for example? Mm, I mean, on principle, I would say yes. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's not going to take as long because it's like, for example, if an, when an English speaker learns Spanish, they're going to reach a high level of comprehension much more quickly than an English speaker learning Japanese. And, and so although they'd still be putting off speaking until the same points of um, achieving comprehension, in practice that would be much shorter because they would get to that point of comprehension much more quickly. So it's not like I'm saying you have to wait a year or you have to wait two years. I'm saying like wait until you reach a high level of comprehension and that's going to be faster or slower or like, you know, longer or shorter depending on what language you're starting from and what language you're learning. Mm -hmm. I think that if you didn't wait as long and you just started and you started speaking more early, the, the consequences would not be as severe in the case of learning a language similar to your native language. Um, but I still think if your final goal is you want to, to really speak like a native speaker, then it's still going to give you the best results to, to wait because it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Whereas in Japanese, Pretty much everything is different from English. So you, you, you just get in the habit of never making any assumptions about how to say anything, right? Like, for example, in English, uh, we say, um, hey, have you seen my phone? Whereas in Japanese, they say, do you know my phone, right? Mm -hmm. Or we say, I need to go to the bathroom. They say, I want to go to the bathroom. And so for whatever thing you want to say, you can't just take the English version and put it into Japanese. You're almost always going to be wrong. So you really get in the habit of just of just never getting creative, just going, okay, do I know how a Japanese person says this? No? Okay, well, I can't say it then. I'm going to sound weird if I say it. Hmm. And you get into this habit of just making no assumptions. Um, and, and in a way that makes things easier. Whereas if you're learning, if you're speaking, if in, like an English speaker and you're learning like German, for example, well, a lot of times, if you make that assumption that it's the same as English, you'll be right because they will be the same. And so a lot of times I think you people get in the habit of just 
taking the English version, putting it into German, and that in a sense makes things very easy. It makes it so right off the bat they can get they can get started with speaking. But if your goal is to really sound like a native speaker, that can create blind spots, right? Because for the small number of things that are different, it's hard to catch those, and so you're 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 going to end up having all these kind of weird English artifacts in the way that you speak German due to that. And so I think it can still it still has a lot of benefits to, to waiting until you you really know how people talk in that language. Uh, if your goal is really to get to the highest level possible, although if if you're more kind of pragmatic and you're just like I just want to be able to speak at a basic level and you know enjoy a vacation or whatever then maybe there's not a, a, a really strong reason to wait because you'll do decently fine even without waiting mm-hmm. yeah uh, a friend of mine once uh, once mentioned that after learning some very different languages uh, like Thai and Chinese he realized that actually English and Russian could be cousins <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of people, people who haven't learned a language that's like 100% um, different from their native language, they might not realize that there's, they, they might have a hard time separating the the idea from the wording, mm-hmm. right? Like sometimes, one example that I rem- I remember, one of my friends, I had a friend who was learning Russian and they said that they, they said, I want to, I want to go and see the sun. And what they meant was they just wanted to get outside and enjoy good weather because it had been cloudy for a while. Mm-hmm. But they literally said, like, I wanted to see the sun in Russian because they were studying Russian. And the other person was like, what? Why do you want to go blind? Like, why do you want to go look at the sun? Uh, and so sometimes we, we really, un, on an like, unconscious level, associate the particular wording with the idea. Like, the idea might be enjoying good weather, where it, whereas the wording is look at the sun. We don't realize that there's actually a disconnect there. Like, it's arbitrary that saying looking at the sun expresses the concept of enjoying good weather and uh and those arbitrary connections are entirely different in in languages that are entirely different so it can take a while to like undo all of that conditioning and get to the bottom i mean even even with japanese it's still hard there's still every once in a while i will discover that i was doing it in some particular context because a japanese person will say hmm that's kind of why'd you say that that sounded kind of weird and I will, and I'll reflect on it, and I'll realize, oh yeah, that's that's uh, that's an English kind of artifact mm-hmm. that I unconsciously transferred into Japanese. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a never-ending battle of being vigilant and really um, not letting your native language creep into your your foreign language. But as a native English speaker, you may also notice this all the time, right? And while listening to foreigners in uh, talking in English. Yeah, yeah, I'll, definitely, and and it doesn't bother me mm-hmm. like. I think can be interesting, especially someone who enjoys languages, right? I'll mm-hmm. find it very interesting. Like, oh, that's interesting that he said that. I wouldn't have said that. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's how they say it in German or how they say it in Spanish. Um, and it won't bother me at all. And I don't think it bothers Japanese people either. So a lot of times people will kind of talk about like, why do you care so much about sounding like a native speaker? Like, are you discriminating against people who, you know, have a, you know, speak, don't speak perfectly? And it's like, no, I think it's totally fine if you don't speak perfectly. But uh, that's just... For me, the way that I view language is that uh, the native speaker is the gold standard and I view learning language as the pursuit of trying to reach that gold standard myself. And I don't think everyone has to have uh, that view, but for me, I just kind of, uh, I, I like to try to blend in. And I just, the way that I view it is that if I say something that a Japanese person wouldn't have said, I'm kind of blowing my cover, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And and I like when I can blend in as much as possible and really make that Japanese person feel like, oh, I'm I'm just like them. They can treat me just like a, a a another Japanese person and they don't have to 
you know, worry if I'm going to know, understand a reference or understand a rare word or something. And so that's just my personal goal in Japanese. One of the, the guests that recommended you for this episode, Dragos, he sent a message and he's saying, I'll be going to Japan and I'll be staying with a host family for three weeks. My Japanese level is between B1 and B2. What activities would you implement in your daily routine to make full use of this opportunity and to dr uh, drastically improve your listening and your spoken Japanese past the B2 level? Well, to be honest, three weeks is nothing um, when you're talking about learning Japanese. It's, it's just really like a blink of the eye uh, over the course of the entire journey of learning Japanese. So rather than spending those three weeks trying to improve your language ability as much as possible, I personally would just try to enjoy it as much as possible and use that as motivation so that when you return back to your country, you'll be really motivated to work hard on your Japanese. And in fact, I kind of had an experience of that myself. Like the after that, that was really the, the, the transition point for me from when I used those traditional, like just going to classes and using apps to going full-time Japanese immersion mm -hmm. was that I took a three-week trip to Japan and I had a, a really, really amazing host family and we really bonded and got together well. And I got to see all these different spots in Japan and just experience the country of Japan. And that itself was such an eye-opening and amazing experience that it really made me feel like, okay, when I, from the second I get home, I'm going to dedicate myself to studying Japanese and I'm not going to let anything stop me. And so I think that that's really the value the, the, the value you could get from that is much greater than whatever micro gain you could make from working hard for three weeks on your mm -hmm. listening ability. Awesome. And there are two questions that I always ask people at the end of the, the, the episodes. One of them is, what's your personal definition of fluency? What does it mean for you, for Matt? Well, for me, I... I don't really have a very strong opinion of this because, mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately it's just a word. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, the, the language ability is such a, a multifaceted thing, right? There's so many different aspects to language ability. And so sometimes someone's going to be, you know, really far along in one aspect of language ability and really behind another aspect. And so I think that's kind of the problem with talking about language ability in, just in general is that it... it, it kind of has this base assumption that language ability is, is like a linear like chart from like zero to a hundred and and you're somewhere along that that continuum when in reality it has you know an infinite number of dimensions and so for me I use the word fluency just in a very pragmatic way because it uh in a way for people who haven't thought super deeply about language learning the word fluency represents kind of the ultimate goal of learning language or at least a significant checkpoint along the way. It's kind of like getting a black belt in a martial art, right? Like, I think uh, in, in a lot of ways, getting your black belts is like the start of your true journey in, in a martial art, uh, whereas before you really get into it, it kind of seems like, oh, he's a black belt. That means he's like a master. And so that's kind of how I think about the word fluency in terms of what I, I mean, I kind of use it when, you know, you can um, understand most content without, too much struggling and you could uh, hold your hold your own in most conversations without much struggling there might still be a lot of more difficult things you can't do but you can get by in like most contexts uh, without a lot of struggle that's kind of like my the vague way that I hold it but I mostly just use it because I know people respond to it 
Like mm-hmm. I could say, oh, I, I got fluent in Japanese in about three years. That's what I'll, I'll say. Uh, three years of like intensive immersion. And that's something that people can like grab onto. Like it's like, it's, it's like with all labels, right? Ultimately, every label has a lot of flaws and a lot of asterisks and, and you know, little uh, small, you know, small print at the bottom. But uh, that, that's how you get people interested so that they want to hear the full story. So that's generally how I talk about it. Also for setting expectations, say like, you know, getting fluent in Japanese takes three to five years, uh, maybe more depending on how much time you have to dedicate it. And so for me, I hold the, the term very lightly. I don't really care what it means. Uh, I just use it to kind of get people into the door when talking about these types of topics, I guess. Yeah, perfect. And a uh, second question, and what's your personal definition of the term polyglot? What does it mean for you? Or language learner. Yeah, this is a term I have even less interest in because uh, I'm not I'm not a polyglot and I don't really aspire to be one. Uh, I, for the most part, I, I just speak two languages, English and Japanese. I've dabbled in other languages and I want to learn more languages in the future. But I think for me, my main thing will always be Japanese. Like, especially now that I'm living in Japan, I really just want to see how far I can take you know, Japanese and English and those, those two languages. Mm-hmm. So really the word polyglot has nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. So I don't really care, but, um, I guess in my mind, it would probably be someone who is like fluent piggybacking off my vague definition of fluency <laughs> that I just gave, who is fluent in at least four languages. Mm-hmm. I would say if somebody was fluent in three languages and they were calling themselves a polyglot, I think I'd be like, eh, you're just trilingual. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need to use the word polyglot. Why don't you just use the word trilingual? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's at, it's at the point when you speak four or more languages and, and really speak them, you know, not just, you can, you know, have, you know, you know do a self-introduction, but like you can really speak th- at least four languages that I'd say, okay, it makes sense to use the word polyglot mm-hmm. and it's not going to sound like you're, you're trying to like exaggerate your yeah. accomplishments. Well, on the other hand, the amount of effort that you've put to reach this level of Japanese, um, like other people would put to, to learn like a bunch of languages into a b1 b2 level right at the end of this yeah i I think so i mean i can't speak from experience so i don't want to kind of say like um like i don't don't want to say that myself i like the use of that for me i don't want to say that myself and be like like oh i've accomplished just as much as you even though i only speak two languages because it you know sounds really arrogant and ultimately i don't know um i haven't learned a bunch of other languages so I, i i can't really know how much effort goes into it um i i think it's probably a very different type of effort right like on one hand, the beginning, the, the, the first stages of the language learning process are the most challenging because you have to go from zero to one. You know, you have to like really get the engine running and start from scratch. Mm-hmm. That might be the most challenging. And mm-hmm. so for me, I only did that one time, right? After that, I was just cruising. I, you know, most of the time that I spent learning Japanese, I understood Japanese. So, or at least I understood Japanese to a gr- pretty great extent. So it was pretty enjoyable. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think that so, so that's like kind of an argument saying, oh, well, maybe the person who learned four European languages is more impressive. But at the same time, I think that uh, it, it's w- one of the most challenging things is just sticking with one thing for a really long time and not getting distracted by shiny new objects or shiny new toys that pop up over here and there. And so I think that a lot of people, even, even if they really wanted to, they wouldn't just be able to get themselves to stick with one language for 10 years straight they would get tempted by all the other new shiny languages mm-hmm. um over here and and, and it's and there's a, a, a lot of fun and excitement that comes along with starting a brand new language right it's like you're, you're going into a whole new world 
And so I think a lot of those more polyglot type people get, uh, they kind of give into the uh, allure of, of just of that excitement of getting into the new world and they're not able to really stick with a single language as far as maybe they would want to. So I think there's arguments on both sides. It's hard to really compare, but it's just a totally different thing ultimately, mm-hmm. I think. Like learning one language to a you know C2 level or a, even beyond versus learning a few different levels like a B1, B2 level. Yeah, totally. And uh, a lot of respect and appreciation for the job that you've been doing with Japanese and also sharing it online. It's thank you. Yeah, thank it's you. really motivating. And the last question that I always ask everyone is one name and one topic. Who would you like to see in the following episodes of LingoCast? Um, I think it would be cool to for you to interview Language Simp. I don't know if you've Language ever no. seen him. He, he has a, a YouTube channel mm-hmm. where he kind of makes uh, like videos that are kind of satire of the language learning community mm-hmm. and he kind of um, makes videos making fun of polyglots a little bit mm-hmm. obviously in a very um, light-hearted uh, funny type of way but uh, I think it'd be interesting to hear to kind of as for the topic to hear him talk about um, like how much well, I guess there's just the kind of curio- the curiosity of like, what, what is the man behind the mask like? Like, what does he really think? Like, how much of what he says is just joking versus how much is uh, does he really believe? Because uh, I, I kind of get the sense that he, uh, you know, he is like self-aware that he has some of those tendencies himself. And he's kind of like playing, you know, almost like, you know, joking, making almost making fun of himself as he makes fun of mm-hmm. all these other people to, to a little bit and maybe not this is just the okay. general sense that i get so i think it'd be cool to kind of just uh see like what does he what does he really think what are, what are, what's the man behind the mask although maybe he will he won't want to go on maybe he wants to keep it like myst- myst- uh, mysterious so to whatever extent he's comfortable doing <laughs> oh yeah sure we would try it but maybe he wants to do the whole interview in character that would be amazing too yeah. so whatever <laughs> <Sure>. whatever whatever <laughs> he's done to do sounds like a really nice idea very different and yeah, I want to leave a final message in Japanese and tell people where, can, where can, people can, can find you in the social media. Cool. Konnichiwa, Matt. です。どうしよう。何話すべきのかな。全然考えてなかった。え、まあ、そうだね。日本語勉強したいって人がいたらぜひ、え、僕の動画とかを見てみてください。え、あと諦めないでください。絶対頑張り続けたら日本語ペラ